Welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast for Friday, October 29th, 2021. As usual, I'm your host, Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. We hope you are in for a great weekend. I want to remind everybody right off the top, you can early vote in municipal elections through tomorrow, Saturday, uh, and then again in person, of course, on Election Day next Tuesday, November 2nd. Encourage you to get out there and vote. Also, something we want to make sure to remind people of if you vote tomorrow, you can still same day register and vote. You need to be ready to do both, uh, but that will not be an option on election day. So, if you need to register, better get out there and do that tomorrow. We're ready to kick off this episode with more election talk. As we break down the big races and issues that will be on the ballot, especially here in Albuquerque and Santa Fe in next Tuesday's election, I want to let you know our line panelists this week, former State Senator Eric Griego, also Tom Garrity of the Garrity Group PR, and last and rounding out the table, Rebecca Latham, the CEO of the Girl Scouts of New Mexico and a former Cabinet Secretary under Governor Susana Martinez. So lots to dive into. We want to jump right into that. And it's the beginning of a bunch of election coverage. But here now, host Gene Grant. We're just four days away from gluing our eyes to our phones and our televisions, waiting for the results in next week's elections. Two mayoral seats in the state's two largest cities, education funding and a divisive stadium bond proposal are all up for a vote. Let's bring in the line panel this week, starting with regular Tom Garrity of the Garrity Group Public Relations Company. We also welcome back to our Zoom roundtable former state senator Eric Riego. Always good to have Eric. And joining us again this week is Rebecca Latham. She is CEO of the Girl Scouts of New Mexico and former head of the New Mexico Tourism Department under Governor Susana Martinez. Welcome to you all. The Albuquerque mayor's race has captured a lot of headlines in the last couple of weeks. This includes recent polling from the Albuquerque Journal that shows incumbent Mayor Tim Keller with a sizable lead over his challengers, Bernalillo County Sheriff Manny Gonzalez and talk radio host Eddie Aragon. With more than 50% of the vote, according to that poll, do Keller's challengers have a chance to take out a big enough chunk to force a runoff? Eric, let me start with you on that question. Is that actually going to be happening here? We've got four days to go. What do you see as possible for the challengers? Well, I think if Keller's folks show up, uh, he's in good shape. I mm -hmm. mean, um, sadly, the, it's, the race has taken some pretty dark turns in the last couple of weeks. Um, you know, and, and um, I think that, that not just the polling that we saw from the journal, but um, the kind of endorsements, you, you see, really see some pretty heavy hitters rallying around the, the mayor, including the governor and uh, now Attorney General, General Balderas. Mm -hmm. So it's clear they're trying to send a clear signal that he's the He's the Democrat, even though this is a nonpartisan race. Um, I think Manny Gonzalez has just sort of uh, his descent into the gutter on personal stuff has just really tanked any chance he had of forcing a runoff. I think his strategy was to try to take the mayor down a notch to try to get in a runoff with him and then maybe somehow, you know, uh, kind of a Hail Mary effort for him to win in a runoff. But I think he um, I think he really blew it. Um, and, you know, at, at the end of the day, I think most folks just want to see a credible, competent uh, person running uh, the office. And given how this campaign has gone, whether you love Keller or not, mm -hmm. um, I think it's been clear that that if you can't run a clear, if you can't run a credible campaign as, as both Manny and 
and uh, Aragon have shown that it's like neither one has really run a, that strong a campaign. Uh, how are you going to run a, a major American city? So, <laughs> so I think I think Keller's in good shape. His people got to show up though. So I hope folks don't think that it's kind of over because uh, you know there's there could still be a runoff if uh, if Keller's kind of folks don't show up. Right. Hey, Rebecca, of course, the senator mentioned Mr. Gonzalez's unsubstantiated accusations against Mayor Keller during that KOB debate. His last ditch effort to tighten the gap. Follow up, if you would, about what Eric just mentioned. What, what is he going to get out of this in the last week or less than a week to go here? I, you know, I'm still, I think, scratching my head about that tactic. I think that uh, the sheriff's better approach would have been to try and um, dismantle the reputation of Aragon. Mm. Um, you know, mm. like you ne we can never underestimate the ability of a third person um, to just completely shake everything up and, and ruin any actual ch chance for change. You know, I, I think one thing or two things that, that the city of Albuquerque that, that the constituents agree on are uh, we need to find a solution to our unhoused population and we need to find a solution to our crime. So if we all agree on the major issues, why can't we agree on, you know, how to fix them? And, and I, I just keep looking at that. I keep looking at Eddie and thinking, you know, sometimes when you want change, it means you got to discreetly get out of your own way. And his being in the in the race really, to me as a voter, showed that he was putting his pride over actual progress. Because if you want change, you've got to actually strategically look at the best way to get there. Mm -hmm. So, frankly, I think M Manny probably should have tried to dismantle that approach and, and try to sway some of those likely Eddie voters back over to him than to try and damage the mayor's credibility, the current mayor's credibility over unsubstantiated claims. That's an interesting point. That's a very interesting point. Uh, and, and Tom, I got to get you in on this. I want to swing north to Santa Fe in a second. But again, for Eddie Aragon and, and Mr. Gonzalez, pick up on where Rebecca just was. That's actually kind of fascinating. Did he, did he blow the moment, meeting the sheriff, by not going after you know, the third party, yeah. third person. You know, in a three horse race, uh, which I'll just use that analogy for the purposes of our conversation today, both Eric and Rebecca bring up some solid points. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think that, uh, you know, uh, Manny and uh, and Eddie's approach, uh, Mr. Aragon and Mr. Gonzalez's approach have really been off because they've been going for, you know, the, the, the head on a six, so to speak, of trying to right. dethrone uh, an incumbent mayor, which is very difficult. Mm -hmm. And uh, clearly he's very popular popular you know whether you know people agree or don't you know people like him other than the other two mm -hmm. so i think that there's a lot that was lost in all of the debates uh, by both mr aragon and mr uh, mr gonzalez you know to not take each other down to try and you know build more of a base to force runoff now because of mr gonzalez's uh you know uh, comments during the last debate which are i think the public sentiment is actually uh, reflected in the albuquerque journal polling uh, you know, it's really it doesn't shaping. It's not shaping up real well for either of the two uh, non-incumbents. Mm -hmm. Now, let's go to Santa Fe. The already extraordinary fundraising gap between the three candidates is growing even wider. You might have read about this. Incumbent Alan Weber has received more than $440,000, according to the latest finance reports from the city clerk's office. That dwarfs the less than 150 grand raised by Joanne Vigil Coppler and less than the 20,000 taken in by Alexis Martinez Johnson. It's a big gap. Eric, does money make or break this race? And if it does make it, that doesn't feel very Santa Fe, that, you know, you, that idea that you can steamroll everybody with a ton of dough. What, what's your sense of this one? 
Well, you know, Santa Fe had a public financing or had a public financing system that really didn't work out too well. It was, it was modeled on the Albuquerque system that we have that mm-hmm. actually Mayor Keller is using pretty effectively. One of the reasons why it worked is we changed the law, the voters changed the law, and uh, to really allow for a much more significant investment in public financing. If you believe we got to take some of the big money, the development money, and, and the special interest money out of uh, local elections, then you got to have an alternative. In Albuquerque, there is an alternative. You know, the, the mayor, you know, 600,000 plus in public funding didn't have to make a bunch of calls to people who want uh, business with the city. Um, but in Santa Fe, unfortunately, just didn't, they couldn't ever figure out how to get their system to work and to be substantial enough for people to run credibly. So, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Weber, Alan Weber is a longtime nationally known, you know, fast company uh, founder, uh, uh, a business guy, but also super progressive, like the electorate in Santa Fe. Mm-hmm. So, yes, he raised a lot of money. I also think a lot of people just see him as, again, not unlike the Keller race, uh, as the most competent person in the race. They may not love him. They may think he, he's made a couple of mistakes, but overall... He comes across and he think he's governed as a pretty competent, uh, progressive, thoughtful guy. And he's he he's benefiting from the same thing I think Keller is, which is he, both of his opponents are not running great races. And right. neither one of them have a clear message other than I'm not the incumbent. Right. You know, uh, uh, Alexis uh, Martinez Johnson is just run for this is our third or fourth time running and just not very effective campaign. And then uh, his main opponent from the from the council, Joanne Coppler Vigil, uh, you know, was is really, you know, she's all over the board. She opposed max mask mandates. And then she, uh, and then she's, uh, you know, really kind of fought some real basic real estate reform as a realtor. So I think both Keller and Weber share a common thread, which is they're, they're, they're progressive, they're competent, and they're running against really bad candidates. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Interesting point there. Got to get in the stadium bond here, for guys. Uh, the measure has become the most talked about proposal on any ballot around the state. Another recent poll from the journal shows more than half of voters are opposed and only about 37 percent are in favor uh, what's especially interesting is nearly everyone has made up their mind already with three percent saying it depends and four percent saying they're undecided uh tom did the city fumble this and how soon before they take another crack at getting a stadium some other way if the voters do turn it down well yeah I, it's clear that there's you know there everybody thought there was going to be a bandwagon it turned out to be more of a red flyer mm-hmm. uh, as far as the you know the new mexico united team you know very good team well-run franchise uh the timing just i don't think was right and that's what's reflected i think in the polling numbers that we're seeing in the albuquerque journal question is is what's going to happen on election day it right. all depends on who shows up but i think uh you know in addition to mayor keller's re-election that uh, the city council and probably the mayor's office will end up finding another way uh, to fund the uh, you know the the New Mexico United Stadium, mm-hmm. and hopefully when when that's done, uh, you know it's something that takes all communities into uh, you know into consideration. Rebecca, the, the United folks, I think they're just under a million dollars in their particular you know uh, bucket of money to spend around the market. I just you know thirty seven percent after eight hundred fifty thousand plus, and you know just what what didn't connect here? Something didn't quite connect. I was speaking to someone earlier about uh, about this, and and I asked that very question, like, wh- what is it that you're not, you know, that is driving your opposition to this? And and this the statement was the the specific figure, 280 full time jobs, and the question of is that realistic? And to the person who I was who I was speaking with, they said, if I can't trust that particular statement 280 full-time jobs because i think somewhere i read that the average 
professional soccer team employs 75 people. So mm -hmm. 280 full-time year-round jobs. So the person said, if I can't trust that figure, I can't, I don't trust any of it. All of it seems shady because I don't know where they're going to come up with the, those 280 jobs. Overall, though, regardless of how this goes, I think it's really important that we as a community, number one, realize that if this doesn't pass now or if this doesn't happen now, that doesn't mean it's never going to happen. It just means that this isn't the right time for it for our community. Mm -hmm. The other thing we need to realize, because I think there's that, well, if we don't support United, they'll leave. I think we have to do a better job at supporting that organization. Everything that United has done for Albuquerque and for New Mexico has been amazing. I mean, like, I don't even like soccer. And I've got New Mexico United apparel and stickers and posters in my house. So they are such a, 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 what they bring to us as a community is so good. We've got to continue to nurture that and grow that and get it to a point where, again, if the stadium doesn't happen now, how do we get it to where it's like uh, that it's more organic and right. that, that, it, it, that everybody feels better about it? Eric, real quick, we're just uh, short on time. 50% um, of the folks also are not crazy about the locations. Uh, particularly Borellis, did we did we mess that up by by narrowing it to these two locations? Well, I don't think that feasibility study was carried out very well, but I think it's the same problem. And I actually agree with Rebecca on this. Like they took this very much jobs construction focused. Um, I don't think that was the right message. I mean, their brand has been bringing us together. We've got huge. Um, you know, crime problems. It was. I think if they would have leaned into that Unidos message that we're united, right. this is a way for us to really come together. Yep. They might have had a shot. In any year, fifty million dollars bond for a private, you know, publicly owned but privately run stadium is a tough ask. But I, I really think they they made a, a bad call when they decided to lean into the to try to get the Republican conservative voters who are not going to support this kind of bond anyway. And they really should have made a play for the younger folks, for the folks who are on the fence. People like me who live in Borellas who say, well, it depends. If you're really willing to bring community into this and you really want to sort of make some change at the community level and bring this together, then I'm open to the idea. But uh, if the play is going to be to, to, to fans only, to sort of business folks only, to chambers of commerce only, Thank you. then that, that just isn't a good message. I got That's, a ton of those mailers and yeah. they were just not that convincing. It was, a, it was a political campaign instead of a hearts and minds campaign. It's unfortunate. Exactly. We you know what I mean? The, Exactly right. Hey, be sure to join us here at New Mexico PBS for election night analysis, and we'll catch back up with the line in less than five minutes with their thoughts on the tragedy involving Eric Baldwin on the set of Rust. The downtown Albuquerque Stadium measure is the other big hot button issue on the ballot, at least here in Albuquerque in this election. And we encourage you, if you haven't already, to listen to our uh, most recent episodes where we had some commentary thoughts from community members where the stadium might be located and their thoughts on it all. This week we're going to take a little different approach. We've got several people who came into the studio with pre-prepared statements both in favor and in opposition to the stadium or some that are kind of in between and we want to bring you that roundup all here together now. Uh, just to give you the rundown of uh, who all you're going to hear from, there is uh, Ramona Malchinski, who is with the Stop the Stadium group, and then Cindy Inava, who uh, supports the stadium, is working with the United for All group, and then we have two city councilors. We have the city council president, Cynthia Borrego, and also Brooke Basson, who was originally a sponsor of this measure, but as you will hear, changed her mind after 
she uh, heard back from constituents. So we have four different opinions running the gamut, and we want to bring those to you now. Good evening. I'm Cynthia Borrego. I'm the city council president. I'm also the city councilor for the Northwest Mesa of District 5. And this evening, I'm here to talk with you a little bit about what is on the ballot for the uh, proposed stadium. And what is on the ballot is basically an initiative as to whether or not the city moves forward on $50 million of bond money to build this, to invest and build the stadium. Um, there would of course be a match uh, from the developer if that does pass. Um, the, the bond funding is basically uh, gross receipts tax bond funds and those are slated to build capital projects. So if the stadium uh, initiative is voted down, then we would move forward with other types of capital uh, development. If it's voted up, then the city would proceed to look at where the stadium is best uh, suited. And there was a study done by the city. The city uh, identified in that study uh, three different uh, areas that would be probably uh, located in the downtown. But I think it's important as a city planner that we have all initiatives on the table and that we look at all areas and that would include traffic, uh, parking, access, um, you know, socioeconomic issues and fragility of neighborhoods. So I think it's important that we keep an eye on this referendum and determine um, whether or not we move forward with it or not. And um, my particular stance on this, because um, I was asked the question, is do I support a stadium? I think, I think in the long term, as a city planner, this positions Albuquerque in a, probably a really good place. Um, but it's up to the voters. My name is Brooke Bassan, and I am an Albuquerque City Councilor for District 4 near the Northeast Heights. I agreed to co-sponsor the legislation that allowed voters to decide if they would like to see the city use $50 million of gross receipts tax revenue bonds to help build a soccer stadium in Albuquerque. The stadium would be home to the New Mexico United and a potential home for other teams down the line. It is said it will revitalize Albuquerque and offer a place for families and residents to gather in support of a team whose goal is greater than just a game. United represents ideals of support, kindness, sportsmanship of all levels, and a true unity of all people. Surprisingly, constituents were very vocal about their lack of support in placing this question on the ballot. A massive majority of phone calls and emails expressed a clear understanding of what was being proposed. Not only did people indicate they were opposed to building a mostly publicly financed stadium, but they were precise in communicating they didn't even want it to be a vote for them to choose. I thought something the size of a $50 million project would be best voted on by the public. Most of my constituents told me they elected me to make this decision for them. For that reason, I ended up voting against placing the question on the ballot, and it ended up passing the city council on a seven to two vote. There are pros and cons to building a new soccer stadium. On one hand, it would revitalize part of our city. It would offer more jobs, local business support, economic stimulation, and somewhere for youth and families to engage in a positive activity together. It would be fun, energetic, and invigorating, and it will not raise taxes. 
On the other hand, it might gentrify neighborhoods. The jobs may only be temporary or seasonal. Attendants might not fill the requested amount of seating as games at their current field are rarely full. This may lead to less revenue than planned, desired, or necessary for sustainability. Most importantly, there are many other projects throughout all of Albuquerque that are currently planned or being built in phases due to a lack of funding. The refinancing of these bonds could be instead used to finish many of these in the pipeline. Also, the overwhelming priority of our city is clearly a concern about the reduction of crime and what to do to help the unhoused. How might a new stadium assist with this? So now it's in the hands of voters to decide what is in the best interests of the overall community. Early voting is currently underway, and Election Day is November 2nd. Voter registration can occur at most, if not all, voting sites. Among many other very important questions on the ballot, everyone age 18 and above in Albuquerque should go vote to decide if building a new soccer stadium is a priority for them. My name is Cindy Nava. I'm a former DACA recipient, a longtime organizer and policy advocate a small business owner, and a new U.S. citizen as of February 22nd of this year. My lived experiences have shaped my work and the lens I see life through. I came to New Mexico when I was seven years old from Chihuahua, Mexico. Growing up as an undocumented immigrant was by no means an easy task. However, I always felt lucky to live in a state like New Mexico, which allowed me to break many of the barriers I was faced with. We are all shaped by our upbringing, and I am no different. My progressive values run deep, born out of living in the injustices rooted so deeply in U.S. immigration policies. As someone who has advocated for issues that affect our communities each and every day, I speak from a place of lived experience that has led with advocacy for change that supports and benefits our communities as a whole. I believe the stadium bond deserves our support on November 2nd. New Mexico United does things differently, and the stadium bond follows the same path. Last year, I met with United about hosting a citizenship event at a match to bring attention to the groundbreaking work and contributions that immigrants make each and every day across our state. This month, that idea became a reality and I had the pleasure of participating in that ceremony, welcoming 50 new Americans on the field during a United game. This on the shoulders of games where New Mexico United celebrated and promoted Black Lives Matter and pride. This action to me was more than a statement. It was the enactment of the conversations we had turned into action with the broader purpose of representation and inclusion that opens and expands opportunities to be innovative if given the opportunity to make this stadium a reality. As someone who grew up in Albuquerque, surrounded by soccer diehards, and one who has seen the deep impact of United playing a foundational role in bringing together our diverse and multicultural communities under the premise of Somos Unidos, there is an intangible quality too. The stadium will bring extensive opportunities for creative and culturally competent engagement with communities that are not always brought to the table. Communities such as the ones I grew up in and deeply understand. It will create an affordable family activity where we can gather, have fun, 
celebrate birthdays and graduations, and this is our opportunity to reimagine and redefine what the stadium could be and what it could bring to our state. An opportunity to expand its multi-use abilities, to serve our communities through collaborative efforts that provide resources, food drives, open park access, blood drives, citizenship ceremonies, health fairs, and so much more. Hi, I am Ramona Melchinski. I grew up in Albuquerque and I'm a graduate student and teaching assistant at the University of New Mexico. On Saturday, I voted against the stadium bond and I urge all Albuquerque voters to do the same. Millionaire team owners and developers would profit from the proposed stadium and the public would get decades of debt. The majority of people in Albuquerque think we have other priorities. On one side are millionaires spending huge sums of money to trick the public with advertising. On the other side are volunteer working class residents like me fighting gentrification. This is David versus Goliath. So far, millionaire team owners have spent nearly $1 million on ads to trick us. They spent $330,000 in just 10 days in October, selling the stadium as a tool for economic and social revitalization. However, virtually all studies of the impacts of publicly funded stadiums show that stadiums have little to no positive impact on local economies. On the other hand, Luxury stadiums drastically increase rent and property taxes, not just in the surrounding neighborhoods, but in the entire city. Sports stadiums like these are a tool for gentrification, pushing out long-term working-class residents so real estate developers and team owners can profit. We do not want that to happen in Albuquerque's historic neighborhoods. We know that the way to improve our city is through more funding for education, affordable housing, and other social services that would address homelessness, child welfare, hunger, and crimes of poverty at their roots. No money should be spent on a sports stadium when any Albuquerque resident faces poverty, hunger, and homelessness. We need those $50 million spent on helping our neighbors now, not tied up in building a stadium. Plus, we do not want to see anyone pushed out of their homes which is exactly what will happen because there is a statewide prohibition on local rent control and thousands are facing eviction due to the economic crisis caused by the pandemic. Despite the lies from Trevisani and others behind the stadium proposals, even a community benefits agreement does not protect Albuquerque residents from gentrification. The city's CBA lawyer, Julian Gross, stated in a virtual town hall that CBAs do not stop gentrification and displacement. In addition, our tax dollars would be used to pay this $50 million loan, but while the city would own the stadium, the binding letter of intent between the city and New Mexico United states that the team would own and control all revenues from the stadium and pay a fraction of that in rent. Finally, the majority of residents in Albuquerque's historic neighborhoods do not want the stadium. They do not want increased housing costs, traffic, and outside development that will transform their neighborhoods forever. No matter where the stadium would be built, though, we know that it is an attempt to begin to change Albuquerque into a city for the wealthy and elite. This stadium will not benefit pe working people and is a step in the direction of losing communities that define the city we love. Albuquerque, vote against the stadium bond. 
All right, we'll jump back to the line opinion panel now. The other big story of the week, of course, is the tragedy on the set of the movie Rust, shooting at Bonanza Creek Ranch up by Santa Fe. Uh, You have no doubt heard about this story by now, but just in case, actor Alec Baldwin uh, thought he was using a prop gun, accidentally discharged it, and a cinematographer was killed and the director injured. That director is recovering. A lot of new information coming out on this week. Uh, Santa Fe County Sheriff's Department had a press conference on Wednesday, confirmed that there was a live round in that gun, and they didn't say if that meant it was a bullet or not, but a live round was in that gun, and that slug has been sent off to Quantico uh, to try to uh, get more information on it. The investigation does continue, and the, the DA indicated that charges are still possible. Nothing is off the table in this investigation, and uh, we have a lot on this for you, but we'll kick it off with the line opinion panel, really diving into what safety changes may come out of this for the entire industry, what it means for New Mexico to be under the spotlight for the entire industry right now, and the future of the industry here in New Mexico. New Mexico is currently in the national entertainment industry spotlight, but for a tragic reason you all know about, it was a week ago we learned that actor Alec Baldwin had accidentally shot and killed a cinematographer on the set of his new film, Rust. Shooting at the Bonanza Creek Ranch near Santa Fe, of course. The director was also injured, but he's recovering. In the days since, there's been a lot of reporting on the safety and workplace conditions on sets. And just yesterday, we got an update on the investigation from the Santa Fe County Sheriff's Office, among other things. Investigators have established a live round was fired from the prop gun, and criminal charges are still a possibility in this case. Rebecca, we're still waiting to hear if below-the-line film workers also will ratify a new agreement over workplace conditions after a near strike two weeks ago. But this tragedy really highlights some of the issues wrapped up in those negotiations. So the question has to be asked, are film sets in New Mexico going to be fundamentally safer? Can they be fundamentally safer? If not, why? Why not? Well, I think we have to be very careful um, about making this a New Mexico issue versus making this a film industry standard. Excellent point. The film industry absolutely needs to adopt uh, more safety standards because this is the most horrific tragedy. I think what we have to be really careful about is um, is if we make it a New Mexico issue, you know, once the governor gets involved, once the legislature gets involved, we make it like if we make it any harder to shoot in New Mexico, are we biting the hand that feeds us? Like, I just feel like, you know, accidents, horrible accidents, that this is definitely, you know, someone was negligent here. Mm-hmm. Multiple people appear to have been negligent. I just don't think this can be something that we stand up first and say, like, you know, like, well, this is what New Mexico is going to do. I do feel like the governor said if the film industry doesn't do something, then we will get involved. Mm -hmm. But at this point, I I, I still would say, like, let's just let's hold off a little bit and see how the industry works it out amongst themselves. Mm -hmm. Hey, Tom, the idea that we know now that live rounds were all over the set and, you know, would be on a set, this seems unfathomable in so many ways. Investigators are trying to establish, in fact, if those same firearms were used by crew members to target shoot during downtimes. It sounds like they did, from what we're gleaning. What's, what sorts of safety changes you know, can come out of this industry-wide, as Rebecca was saying? Is there anything that the industry can do versus pl- the political side? 
Yeah, well, you know, there's a, I think there's a lot of leeway that has been given to the film industry, uh, mm -hmm. you know, because a lot of us, we just don't understand what the industry is all about. We, you know, pay our admission to go see the movie. We were entertained right. and we think it's pretty cool when the star, you know, stars, you know, come into town and stuff. But as far as the actual how a movie is produced, I think we've all learned a little bit more about the role of an armor, uh, about the role Good of, uh, you know, cinematographers and, and, you know, it, it Hopefully, we should have learned more about it under different circumstances. But now, these are the circumstances that we have. And I think that, you know, the industry, it's really on the industry to say, okay, how are we going to fix this? Mm -hmm. um, how are we going to, you know, make sure that the government doesn't come in, whether it's California, whether it's New Mexico or Georgia, uh, you know, the industry really has to decide how they're going to change things. Uh, and if they don't, then that's where we're going to start to see, I'm sure, uh, you know, different states coming up with different standards, of which, as uh, Rebecca had indicated, could have really devastating effects on an industry that generated $525 million, uh, you know, into New Mexico's economy during uh, 2019. Mm -hmm. uh, you and know, even more last impact, year, by the way, it, it, bumped up to, it bumped up to 630, <laughs> 630 okay. million, you know, last year. It, it is, it is mm -hmm. a huge industry and mm -hmm. it's a, it's a tremendous tragedy. And unfortunately, because of where it happened, New Mexico and how New Mexico handles this is now under the spotlight. Mm -hmm. So I think that the governor did a good job of deflecting it, you know, of saying, hey, we're going to look to the industry first. Uh, so that way the state doesn't take the hit because this really right. could have happened anywhere. Tom, let me stay with you on this. You mentioned the uh, press uh, deal that's up there. It's unbelievable the amount of cameras that were at the Santa Fe Sheriff's Department and also for the district attorney up there uh, uh, to hear them speak. Are, are, how are we doing on that front? Uh, are we presenting ourselves here in New Mexico well in this international moment that's very stressful and very difficult? Well, it's very difficult to say what what that definition of well is, mm -hmm. uh, because you know the the subject matter, you know the uh, the sheriff's office, the DA, everybody's going through an investigative process, and so you know what I like about what I'm seeing is is that they're you know having a regular uh, you know updates to the media, uh, you know they're not cutting any side deals. You're mm -hmm. not seeing, you know, any investigators or anybody from the sheriff's office kind of leaking information out. The state has been very quiet. Uh, anything that has possibly been leaking out has been leaking out from the cast and crew right. of, uh, of the show Rust. Mm -hmm. So New Mexico as a whole, I'd have to say, is doing as well as it can right now with the media response just by following, blocking and tackling, taking care of the things, you know, uh, having regular briefings, answering questions directly, mm -hmm. letting them know what that process is. Mm -hmm. Hey, Eric, uh, we've heard from a lot of people, including recently in a Facebook Live I did with uh, IATSE Local 480 union members, that productions bring in crew from all over and call them local. Are you worried about this situation puts a dark shadow over our local film workforce? I mean, I, you know, as Rebecca mentioned, the, the armorer is from out of state. The, I don't know if the AD is from out of state, but everyone's assuming everyone involved is from New Mexico. Do you, you see where I'm going here? It, it's a difficulty. Yeah. What do you think? Well, I, I haven't heard that there's sort of like, oh, those, you know, the New Mexico crews are a bunch of yahoos. But, but I want to get back to both what Rebecca and Tom said. Sure. Look, we built this industry from scratch yep. with public dollars. Let's be clear about that. There's hundreds of millions of dollars in investment in this industry that we built it from scratch. So I think it's absolutely critical that in addition to, to, to supporting industry, to making sure it's safe, that the workplaces are safe, that it's incumbent on us to say, look, 
we're going to continue to make New Mexico a, a really hospitable place for film. And, and we're going to expect that these folks getting these pretty massive subsidies are uh, adhering to the highest standards for their workforce. And I, so I actually think it's a missed opportunity for our political leaders to say, well, let's not, let's not do anything to scare them off. I mean, you know, because, you know, the two or $300 million we've invested so far is not worth it. So, so I actually think this is a moment for, for not just New Mexico crews, because we've, we've also worked hard to build New Mexico crews. We, only, we didn't have enough crews before. That's right. we, we invested a ton of money at CNM and other places to, to really build out. So we, we have a reputation now for having some pretty solid crews. So I don't think that's going to spill over onto the, onto the individual New Mexicans. I think it's really going to be, honestly, it's about the productions. Are you going to do a better job of making sure that these productions are safe, including folks like Alec Baldwin, who was a producer in this, this show. So I think he does... He doesn't have personal responsibility. That was not his fault, what happened with the gun. But he is in charge of the whole overall production, and, and the folks in charge need to do a better job of holding everybody accountable, including who they hire, including how weapons are handled on the set, yep. including like how they vet people. There's a lot of things that, that went wrong in this particular case. Good points there. Hey, Rebecca, do you think this death uh, in investigation, uh, especially, will impact the ratification for that new agreement I mentioned earlier with the below-the-line film workers here? Might this situation put that in jeopardy, possibly? You know, I'm not intimately familiar with with where the negotiations are now and, and mm -hmm. how you know how those uh, uh, workers are, are. I'm not very familiar with the situation, uh, but I would say that this certainly, th like this, makes their point. If if they're concerned, or you know, we've heard about on this particular set about the concern over safety and the corners being cut and how you know these uh, workers walked off the set because they needed to make their point very clear that, mm -hmm. that they didn't feel it was safe. We all know, you know, you can have, there's the, that triangle that can be fast and cheap, but it won't be good. It can right. be good and fast, but it won't be cheap. You know, like, so they were trying to make something good. Uh, they're trying to make something fast and, and, uh, and cheap. And, and then you, it, the, the, sta the standards aren't good. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, this really kind of plays to that point. We all have to do a better job at protecting yeah, I mean, it's this public industry, this is public investment in this industry. We got to protect, yep. uh, protect it, and um, and then really just hear hear the those concerns, and then you know do whatever we can to to help mm -hmm. find some a good compromise. Good points there. We'll have more on the fallout from the tragedy on the Rust set on our Facebook page, including a, a discussion on liabilities and accountability with UNM law professor Sherry Burr. We encourage you to give that a watch if you haven't already. Earlier this week on Facebook Live, Jean Grant had the opportunity to catch up with UNM Law School Professor Emerita Sherry Burr. She has done a lot of work and a couple books that you'll hear about that have to do with entertainment law. She is obviously following the situation and this investigation on the movie set for Rust very carefully and closely and has a lot of great insights on the legal aspects around this in terms of liability in terms of the issue, as we mentioned before, the shooting involved actor Alec Baldwin. He is also a producer on this uh, set, and those two roles may have very different implications going forward in this investigation. But uh, we thought this was a great opportunity to bring you that conversation as well. We do those Facebook Lives just about every week, usually Wednesdays around lunchtime. I encourage you to tune in. And as always, you can leave us suggestions, ideas for upcoming Facebook Lives or topics for this show. You can do that here on the podcast. Leave us an audio message 
or find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and let us know what you're thinking there. Just search for New Mexico in focus. Thank you, Kevin. Hey, folks, welcome. It's Wednesday, time for a Facebook Live. I'm here with Sherry Burt. She is a, a former professor. Are you still teaching at UNM? I should have asked before. Okay, so my official title is Dickinson Chair of Law Emerita. Mm-hmm. So I am actually zooming in from my law school office. Okay, so cool. um, even though I officially retired to write books full time, which includes Entertainment Law in a Nutshell that came out this year, and this this doorstop Entertainment Law casebook. Uh, so I'm still officially uh, connected to the university. There you go. Uh, more importantly to us, she also teaches entertainment law as uh, part of her bag of, of all kinds of great things you teach over there, including uh, wills, trust, intellectual property. I mean, you give international law and all kinds of other things. So I want to thank you for coming and spending some time with us. We had a news conference this morning outside the sheriff's, sheriff's department. Also, the DA was there. Um, not so much to relate for the folks yet this morning. It's a situation that's in process. Probably the biggest takeaway at this point on Wednesday morning is that the slug they pulled out of the director's shoulder seemed to match up with the idea that it was a live round that came from that gun. Those details we can handle a little bit later. The reason I wanted to ask you to Sherry to come on, let's talk about uh, things that happen on movie sets all the time. It's a, it's a difficulty. It's a, it can be a very dangerous deal. Um, in, in the broadest sense, when you teach entertainment law and when production companies like what we've got going for Rust get set up, how, how do they manage the process to make sure everyone is safe legally? I'm not, not, I don't want to get into on the ground. That's not your expertise about how the guns were handled, but there's got to be a way production companies set them themselves up. I want to start broadly there, then we'll get into some of the details. Okay. Well, I mean, to begin with, with any production company, any film, there's a, a series of contracts to get negotiated, including most likely Alan Baldwin had a what's called a loan out agreement for this picture alone. There mm-hmm. was probably uh, a corporation set up for this picture alone, uh, and that's a way of isolating liability to just this picture's assets. Uh, And additionally, uh, there are requirements for any film when they're dealing with potentially dangerous situations, like if they're going to have pyrotechnics, if they're going to be lighting fires, there is a requirement that they have to have fire trucks on the ground. Uh, So there's a lot of requirements that they have to go through. They also have to have insurance. Mm -hmm. um, uh, And uh, usually the insurance uh, does what's called a completion bond, where they ensure the completion of the picture in in case anything strange happens, like when River Phoenix uh, took enough drugs to kill himself, uh, and uh, and then there was a completion bond on that film. And then there have been instances where actors, because of certain things that they've been doing, cannot get insured, and therefore they will not get uh, access to being in a particular picture. So legally, there are a lot of contracts, there's a lot of insurance that goes to set up any particular picture before it gets off the ground. Mm-hmm. I, I appreciate that. Is there anything in particular when there are firearms being used? There's an angle on insurance, things like that. Is it, is it different? 
Well, there's, it's uh, supposed to be safe, and that's why they have the armorer position. Uh, and if you think about the fact that Westerns were a big part of television production in the 1950s and the 1960s, where guns were being used all the time in every episode, and yet no one ever got shot, never, no one ever got killed, that this situation is very unique, extremely unique. Because we've only had a couple of instances, uh, mm -hmm. such as on The Crow, where people have actually gotten killed. But when you think of all the Westerns, uh, no one getting killed on a Western. Uh, so this situation is quite unique. Interesting. Is there any, any kind of precedence here you can think of legally? Um, I, I'm not a lawyer, certainly, but I've been looking around and I really can't find one. I'm, I'm talking outside of the, like you just mentioned, the folks that have uh, had a tragedy on set. Anything to look back on to, to inform us in this case? Well, I think generally in terms of the, the, the general law of, of murder, manslaughter, uh, and so forth, um, I don't see how Alec Baldwin uh, in his role as an actor has any personal liability for what happened because he was handed the gun and he was told that it was a cold gun, meaning there were no more rounds, and he, he was practicing. Um, when he aimed the gun at the at the at the toward the camera, which is what he was supposed to do, he was supposed to do what's what's called a, a cross draw. So a cross draw is you're getting the gun from the opposite hip uh, area, and then you've got to aim. So in some instances, that's a faster draw for some people uh, compared to the standard gun smoke, where he was always getting the gun from his from his hip. So that's what he was practicing, and that does take practice to be able yeah. to do become uh, look, make it look natural that you can do a cross draw and aim uh, pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, there have apparently been instances where um, when they're going to be fire having a gun fired at a can at the can toward the camera they usually put up a bulletproof shield why one was not done in this instance is going to be part of the question so mm -hmm. a lot of questions are going to arise uh legally because of what happened i mean Obviously, there were so many problems on the set prior to this. Uh, we now know that his stunt double uh, in practicing uh, discharged two rounds. So yeah. that in itself was uh, a straight up, you know, not only a red flag, black flag, yellow flag, green, all the flags were blazing that 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 was a problem with the gun if the stunt double, because you bring in the stunt double to do it first to make sure that what's going to happen on set is going to be safe. Mm -hmm. And the fact that that was a problem with the stunt double is an indication of potential problems on that set. Mm -hmm. um, we also know that <laughs> they were using the prop guns from the set to do practice target shooting, not other people who were not going to be handling the guns were using it. And so it is so easy, depending on the type of gun, to leave a round and not know that you've left a round. Um, in the traditional guns, revolvers that they used uh, for Westerns, you know, you flipped out the barrel, you saw all the chambers, so you knew that it was basically clear. So depending on what they used, um, uh, it would have been easy to leave a round without someone necessarily uh, knowing without first firing to check it, check it first. Mm -hmm. Interesting points there, you know, and my understanding, the Colt that was used 
you know, period correct gun, you know, this is a late 1800s set film. My understanding is it's not the type of barrel you can just kind of look and see if there's a round in it. You have to okay. take this extra step. Okay. It looks like, and that leads me to the question, it looks like there was a chain of handling of this weapon. Right. And what we, what we, there's a lot we don't know, there's a little bit we do know, but it seems pretty clear from the press conference today, the sheriff mentioned that two people, of course, uh, have handled the Yes, Ms. Gutierrez, the armorer, and Mr. Halls, the assistant director. That's right. So and we know they were directly handling the gun. Which, le which leads me to the idea of negligence and who is negligent on these types of things. Now, you mentioned before the, the, the role of the armorer, the role of the assistant director, and both of those roles encompass checking these weapons over carefully before they are handed to an actor. So exactly. the, the negligence chain, so to speak, <laughs> how does that work in law? What, you know, is the first one person to touch it more liable, the last person to touch it? I'm a little confused on how that all that, works. That's a good question. So with negligence, you look to see what was the duty, uh, what was the breach, was the causation, and what was the harm? So those are the four tenets of any negligent claim, negligence claim. So in this instance, you look at what are the duties of responsibility for the various people involved in handling this gun? And with the armorer, that's where that's the person who's most in charge of all the weapons. Um, and it's curious to me that she set out three weapons, three guns, and that's bizarre. I mean, there should have just been one gun set out, the gun that, uh, that he was supposed to use, that had been practiced with by the stunt double, that once they knew the gun had discharged, they hadn't used that gun, they had gone and looked at other guns. So there should have been only one gun on the table. So that of itself is problematic. Did she violate her duty by setting out three guns uh, that she did not uh, specifically check? Mm -hmm. And then you have the assistant director who just picks one up and yells cold gun. Did he have a duty to correctly check the guns? But you know, they're in a situation where even if he had checked, as you brought out, he might not have known that there was still a live round unless he fired. So it all goes back to the armor. So the armor should have checked that weapon, the actual weapon that would be going into Alec Baldwin's hands, checked the weapon, fired it, because you never know when something has been left behind. And specifically, if she knew that they had been using that gun for target practice. And that's a problem in the chain of command. What were they doing shooting prop guns as target practice at cans, people who were not going to be involved in handling the gun on set. So, um, and, you know, we know that she was young, that this was her second picture as armorer. Mm -hmm. uh, and so she may not have had, you know, when you think of the traditional armor on an old Western, for example, these were these craggly old men. And they, yes. if they said, don't you touch that gun, no, <laughs> nobody would have touched that gun. A craggly old guy would not have allowed anybody to do what happened on this set. Um, and so it could be that her being young, that they she may not have had the authority where if she said no, they might have just ignored her. Right. Um, so that's a problem. You need the armorer to be the person who conveys strict authority because he's 
totally responsible for security of these weapons. Um, so it and uh, so that could be part of the the breach of duty is that one she let the guns be used prior to she didn't uh, check them once they came back and not only check visually, but also fire them to make sure they're only firing blanks. Uh, and so there are there, that's a potential causation for her. Um, and we know that now we know that the assistant director director may be accused of breach of duties as well, because there were several problems on the set. And in fact, that led to a walkout of people who are professionals. He said, this set is too dangerous. And they left that morning. Instead of setting down, shutting down the set, he hired you know, other non-union people to come in. And so that's problematic right then and there. Um, if he has people walking out, and this is a union picture, right. um, so the, uh, the only people who are supposed to re uh, replace the union IATSE people are union IATSE people. That's a problem. They should have set, shut down the set and continue to you know, check to secure the set instead of just hiring uh, extra people to come in and then proceeding forward. You know, and when you look at all the things that have come out, you know, all the investigations, it just seems like this tragedy was just set up from a long cause of, of problems on that set. Mm -hmm. Does the fact that the AD, that he had trouble on another picture with guns as well, and was actually fired off of a show, how does that factor into the legal side of this? I mean, okay, should, well, that's, that, hired, right. should he have been hired in the first place? Well, and, and obviously that's going to be a question, should lawsuits be fired? And most likely they're going to be fired on behalf of the, the cinematographer who lost her life and beha on behalf of the director who was actually shot. So mm -hmm. those are the two people who were most harmed from this situation. So um, that's going to be a question. Um, and it's it's curious because the director would be have some responsibility for hiring the assistant director. So one of the questions that's and the producer. So one of the questions that's going to come up is should they have known that this guy was problematic, was fired before, and therefore should they have not hired him? I mean. I think going forward, this guy will, in the classic language, never work in Hollywood again uh, after this. But should they have known, given that he was fired from a previous set, that they should not have hired him for this set because he's not the type that's very careful in terms of, of checking things mm -hmm. and responding mm -hmm. once problems come up. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, uh, the district attorney this morning in the press conference mentioned in an answering a question that all charges, so to speak, are on the table. Right. Meaning for everybody. And right. the question specifically, specifically was about Baldwin as an actor, but she made a, a point. Is that the best way to go at this point in an investigation? Just to say, look, everything's on the table. Everyone's on the table till we get this all nailed down. Well, they have to do that. Yeah. They have to do that unless they, especially in a situation this fluid, where they don't have all the facts, um, as we have seen, since this has happened, more and more facts are coming out. Like today, they announced in the press conference that they had recovered 500 combinations of rounds of blanks and real live ammunition on that set. 
Uh, and that, you know, that, so they, you know, what is live ammunition doing on the set to begin with? So, um, and even blanks can be harmful if they're shot close enough to the individual. So, um, th so there are lots of questions. I mean, it, uh, you know, we, the public are fascinated by this, but mm -hmm. it's going to take a while, I think, to investigate and get a sense of what actually happened. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about, um, potential suits here. And if you okay. could for the folks, kind of cut cut the difference between what a civil lawsuit might be versus other types of lawsuits. We'll start okay. there. All I'll right. dive in a little bit more. Okay, so criminal versus uh, civil. Mm -hmm. um, criminal, you face the penalty of loss of time in jail. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, in this situation, it doesn't seem, but I don't know, all the facts are not in, mm -hmm. that there was any intent uh, to harm. I mean, right. the facts, more facts may come in, we don't know yet, um, that there might have been intent on some person to plant around in, in one of those guns, but we don't know that yet. So mm -hmm. assuming that they never find intent, then they're looking at negligence and whether, you know, the, the, the death of the cinematographer could amount to involuntary manslaughter, where you look at a series of events surrounding the situation and was there a reckless disregard for safety uh, that led to the cause of death. Mm -hmm. uh, so that would be, um, if anybody is part of that chain, um, then that could lead to a criminal penalty and that could lead to time in jail. Mm -hmm. um, based on what we've seen so far, I would say Alec Baldwin is not going to be filed uh, criminally based on his uh, role as an actor in discharging the firearm because he clearly had no intent to harm anybody. He was just in his role. Um, and there have been people who have said that he might have had a responsibility to check the gun. Um, but we know from from acting, you know, various actors have different methods. Um, Daniel Day-Lewis, for example, when he's on a set, he totally gets into the character like when he played Lincoln and he stays that character for the whole time. So if you're in character, you're not going to be checking because to check like that requires you to step into a different mindset than the mindset of your character. And we know Alec Baldwin had been, they weren't even filming because he was practicing for when they would film the actual scene. So he was actually in the mindset of an actor. So not only does he have no intent, um, I would say that he probably has, you couldn't even uh, put a negligence charge on him because of the way film sets are, are set up. So I don't see him ever being charged criminally for what happened. Now, um, civilly, that's another situation. Um, and here, uh, you know, when they finish the investigation, you know, they may find um, that in his producer role. So that's a separate role than the actor role where that where which led to the discharge of the gun in his producer role. Producers are responsible for the overall picture. Um, producers are responsible for hiring everybody on the set. Now, he has um, we don't know exactly what the level of his producer role was. 
is because there are actors who demand a producer credit, even though they're not necessarily doing anything that the producer does. So the producer is responsible for hiring all the, the staff, hiring all the, 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 the talent, getting the sets ready, getting all the finances and all that. So we don't know yet if he had any part of that role. So one of the questions that's going to come up for the producers is who hired the assistant director, you know, and if it's the director who hired the assistant director, that puts the director in this strange uh, situation where he suffered from an action from a guy that he hired. And maybe as you pointed out, he should have investigated, found out this guy had been fired before for failure to maintain a safe set and that he should not have hired this guy. Um, and so the producers, so that's going to be an interesting situation. And then the producers are going to um, look to the insurance companies to cover any of their liabilities. And that's where sometimes you get lawsuits where the insurance company says, we're not covering anything because you were negligent. Wow. And so then the producers may end up suing the insurance companies in order to get them to pay to cover their their liability so this situation is fluid we don't know all the facts there are possibilities for numerous types of lawsuits here um, so we won't know until the facts are come out and we see uh get a sense more of who is responsible for what happened mm -hmm. excellent point there let me throw another one at you the ap reported they list the call sheet from that day listed five producers, four executive producers, a line producer, and a co-producer, as well as the AD and the armorer. That's a lot of producers floating right. around a fairly small, uh, you know, mid-budget right. film. Right. And you, you got to wonder, someone had to see something. That's a lot of producers at that point. Does that complicate matters when you have that? And then I realize your point that some of these people are, are what they call vanity producers, right? They yeah, and money producers, money right, exactly. producers. There have been lawsuits with money producers right. trying to get the full credit as a producer so that they could be get an Academy Award. But but we don't, you know, the, yeah, well, they had well, all right, these- let me, ask, let me ask you this in the chain of negligence, what I'm setting up here, what if it turned out one of these lower down producers was out act, plunking, you know, bottles and cans with this with these people? How right. much exposure did that does that producer right that ups yeah that definitely ups the exposure and that's why i say we are still looking to find out what the facts were who were the people who were out there shooting this gun when they shouldn't have been mm -hmm. um who was the person who should have told them not to do it and definitely the armor is is one of those people mm -hmm. um so we don't know i mean so that's that we can speculate but we don't know exactly what the producers were doing in their right. role on the set that day I'm not a lawyer, but it would seem to me that the inability to deal with this when five, you, you noted this, Sherry, when five days previous, they had two problems with that gun, uh, two live rounds after being told the gun didn't have any ammunition. That to me seems very odd that they didn't right. take further action to either mitigate something happening down the road or get rid of the people, frankly, who screwed up. Right. Point. And I'm curious your opinion on how that affects. Well, that. I think that's definitely one of the facts that increases the um, 
the uh, the <laughs> the recovery of the cinematographer. I think definitely she is the innocent party here, and um, if they are smart, they will settle with her family as quickly as possible. Right. Uh, but uh, definitely, the more those facts come out, the more that builds up uh, their liability. Why didn't they investigate? Why didn't they make more changes once that that happened in the um, pre-production process? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I got to wonder, Sherry, by the way, we're talking to Sherry Burr, Professor Emerita at UNM Law. Uh, she teaches entertainment law, uh, as well as other things regarding entertainment and law, but we're grateful she's spending some time with us today for this Facebook Live. Sherry, I got to think this has ramifications for the state of New Mexico and how we do our film thing here. I, I couldn't help but, but wonder when I saw that phalanx of national and international reporters this morning in Santa Fe, and even watching CNN and some of the other channels earlier before talking with you, the coverage is huge. Right. It's absolutely huge. Yes. What would be your prediction about some of the changes, uh, protocol changes? I mean... Well, the governor, yeah, so the governor announced today that she's looking at ways to make the film industry more safe. So I would think one thing that they can do, I mean, there are already requirements that if a film production is going to be blowing things up, they have to have a certain amount of fire trucks, they have to have hoses ready to put out the fire and so forth. So there are already those requirements. Mm -hmm. So one possibility might be if the product, because the production has to tell the state in advance the kinds of things that they're going to do. They have to file for all these permits. Mm -hmm. um, so one thing that might happen is that uh, in the instance where there are going to be guns um, on the set, whether it's a Western or a thriller or some other type of set, that they may require um, an additional professional a gun person to be following the armorer. So that may be a possibility, you know, just following up, making sure the armorer has the skills to take on this role. And we have lots of people who can do that. You know, if you go to Calibers, for example, I took classes and you've got a lot of really skilled people. And when you take classes at Calibers, the first thing they teach you is gun safety. That is number one. That's how they start out. So it could be that there might be an additional requirement imposed for the armorer and for the assistant director when there are going to be guns on set to make sure that these are people who know what's required for gun safety. And it could be that additional protocols are imposed, such as you can't use the guns for target practice the way these people did. I mean, it's absolutely nuts that they were doing that. So I, you know, they would have never done something like that on a gun smoke episode for prior to a gun smoke episode. I mean, that's that was total professionalism or a bonanza episode or any of the traditional westerns or even, you know, some of the more recent westerns. Um, they would have never done that. So I think um, that 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 was very problematic that that happened. So I could see a situation where a lot of additional steps are imposed uh, when you have a set where guns are going to be discharged. Mm -hmm. I've got to think, Sherry, that the insurance business is going to step in here, and uh, this is a question, and say, guys, it is time for the use of CGI, the use of all kinds of other ways we can use flash muzzles. You can get your point across without having to pack guns with 
you know, gunpowder and fake bullets. It just, there's another way to do this. Right. Your sense yeah. of that, they, they would have some say here, it would seem to me. Well, they, they will have some say, but, you know, I know that that's been a call, you know, oh, now we have all this technology, use CGI, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But the reality is when you think of dozens of years of, you know, several dozens of years of all these Westerns being filmed and nobody being shot, we've got to go back to this situation, you know, and the situation in The Crow. I mean, do you shut down everything because you happen to have a that feel of incompetence, you know? So that's that's the question that I think has to come into it because one of the things that the insurance companies can say is we want to see, you know, the list of people who you are hiring for these key roles. We want to make sure that these people are competent. We want to make sure that there's backup training for these people uh, before we will insure your set. So that's one way to take a look at it without having to totally shut down, you know, the ability to render authentic um, sets, um, authentic uh, items on the screen. Um, you know, I just watched the newest James Bond film and, uh, and which I loved, though I didn't like the ending, um, uh, but I loved it. And, you know, it's like, you don't say like, no, you can't have any weapons on a James Bond film just because they had all those incompetence in New Mexico who led to this tragedy, right? So I think you've got to look at this holistically, how to continue to be able to deliver the quality that the public demands when it comes to, to certain types of pictures. Um, while at the same time making sure that you don't have incompetents who are in charge of, of rendering uh, these, um, uh, helping with these sets and managing the guns, which mm -hmm. it is clear that's what's, what's going on, what happened in this case. Mm -hmm. yeah, I forgot to mention, by the way, that uh, there was a text message sent to the unit production manager known as, a, as you know, a UPM on right. set. Quote, we've now had three accidental discharges. This is super unsafe, end quote. That's pretty damning. I, I, right. I got to think I, for a prosecutor, that's just gold right there, you know? Right. That's a, it's yeah. a hard one. I mean, we don't want to see people suffer here. There's been a tragedy, certainly, but I, I got to think there's got to be a new way of doing things for armorers as well. New protocols. Yes strip it down. I tried to get to the local 44 folks out in California to talk to them about it. It was a little early for them. They're still trying to uh, get some things figured out. But these right. are folks that work with pyrotechnics. Right. Clear here. I mean, these are the people blowing up stuff on right. action, as you mentioned. They know how to be safe. Right. I mean, they're blowing up cars and they're flipping down the street. Right. Well, you that's know? the thing. I mean, you mentioned, I mean, there's a full range at which, you know, think of a Fast and Furious film, right? There, right? So there's a full range at which Hollywood is doing these types of action sequences. Uh, and that's why I, it would be horrible. In fact, you know, there's a, uh, you know, you have bad facts can make bad law. Uh, there, you, you don't, I, I would hate to see a situation where this situation becomes the model for how to handle everything. Uh, what I think has to happen is this situation becomes the model for reminding people safety first, competence, professionalism first in all these people. You want it all the way down the chain. Um, 
Uh, and so that should be, I think that should be the takeaway from this situation is just the reminder, safety first, professionalism first. And when you start getting these claims of problems on the set, there needs to be a shutdown and some investigation of what's going on uh, before there's a tragedy like this. I have another question here, another little process question. When the production company came out the other day and said they had no official word of problems from anybody, uh -huh. uh, that, was, that was interesting to me. Like there was not an official complaint. Right. But movie sets are very, they're not, you know, these are not fortune, you know, buildings with, you know, you run to HR and you go down to the next guy and right. down the hall. People know when things happen. Right. They really, you know, there's, there's, can they make that stick that we didn't have any official word on this? Well, okay. So Jean, you've been on film sets and you yeah. know that it's both a collaborative process, but also a hierarchical process. Right. Yeah. And exactly. so you try to think, how does that, you know, they're all collaborating. They're all bringing their skills to the table and yet there are hierarchies, right? And there are instances because the film industry is so word of mouth, people don't want to be known as a troublemaker, right? So they might talk among each other, like the five who walked out who said, look, we, this is too unsafe. We gotta, we've got to skedaddle. Um, they might talk among themselves. They might send a a text message to the to the unit production manager, but by official they probably mean that no one said in writing exactly this say this set is too unsafe for anybody to continue, and it's unlikely um, as you said there's no HR person it's unlikely that anybody's ever going to potentially do that. Mm -hmm. I mean the people who walked out you know they were concerned for their own safety. They were like, this is just too problematic uh, what's going on this set. And they're professionals, you know, they're IATSE professionals, union professionals. So they have had lots of experience and they know when a set, a set has become too unsafe as this one had been become. So um, yeah, so uh, I, 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 it's going to be hard for them to make that stick in a traditional sense, right. but what they're going to go back to is the nature of the entertainment industry and how films get, uh, get done. Excellent. Yeah. Professor, show us those books one more time. Would you? <laughs> Thank you. Sure. So this is uh, entertainment law cases and material uh, 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 on established and uh, and emerging media. So it's there's a significant part dealing with film, television, music, uh, and other entertainment law related productions. And the same with this is easier. That's the doorstop. Entertainment law in a nutshell. I just published the fifth edition this year. Uh, so I've been I've been uh, putting out editions uh, since 2004. Um, and so I always update. And of course, the sixth edition will have <laughs> will have uh, uh, references to what happened on the set of rusts. It's it's so unfortunate, so tragic. I feel sorry for the family of the cinematographer, for the director who got shot, for Alec Baldwin, who's going to have to live with this for the rest of I mean, he rest of his life. He looks so distraught. Um, clearly, there's no intention. Um, he just couldn't believe that this had happened. And so I, I just my heart goes 
out for all the people involved. Um, and I'm sure Halls is in hiding, you know, the AD, yeah. nobody can get to him because he knows he's got, he's got legal uh, ramifications. And, you know, the armor, this is her second picture and she'll probably never work in Hollywood again as an armor. So, you know, She's the yeah. child of an armorer. Right. That's the interesting part, isn't it? Right. So, but I think if her father had been the armorer, this wouldn't have happened. Because right. her father, who's had lots of skills, would not have let these people go shoot rounds. Right. Um, you know, her father knows the deal. So, um, you know, and we all know that just because someone is a child of, you know, a great lawyer or a great justice or a president doesn't necessarily mean that they automatically inherited those skills because those are skills that are built up over time. You know, you can understand guns. You can be around guns all your life. Um, I watched my grandmother meticulously clean her 38 special, which she would discharge at the 4th of July or New Year's Eve. But I wouldn't say that I could shoot as well as she did just because I want because I you know I'm her granddaughter um that requires skill and in fact I know I can't shoot as well as she did because I took classes and I saw the results so um so you don't just because you're the child of somebody who's been doing this doesn't necessarily mean that you have the skills protect your particularly those kinds of technical skills that you get from being on set and also you know she's young looking did she have the authority you know would people listen to her and that's not necessarily something that you can naturally inherit mm -hmm. that's a key point i appreciate you bringing that up a second time because the first time you said it i sort of went huh in my head there, that's a, that, because we don't know. Right. We really don't know. She could be, she could have been screaming her head off for safety. And we have no idea if somebody intervened or, or right. kind of, you know. Or ignored her. Right. Right. That's right. It, that, that happens. Authority is a very hard thing to do for a young person. We know for women, people of color, right. uh, cowboy mentality on film sets. I, I say that uh, not as a necessarily negative Right. That's just part of the culture, you know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah, I mean, you would have to be, I mean, when you come with being young, being a, a woman of color, um, you really would have to show authority in a very strong way. I mean, it's almost like you'd have to overshow. Hell no, don't touch that gun, right? You'd have to overshow it. You'd have to go buffalo a guy, hit him over the head for touching the gun. I mean, you'd have to overshow authority for people to say, gosh, she's really serious. She's really serious. Um, and so, you know, and it could be she's new, you know, it's her second picture. She's trying to be nice, which is something that women tend to, um, you know, want to do. We, you know, we've been brought up. We're supposed to be all nice and nobody likes it when we're like, hell no, don't you touch that gun. You know, nobody likes that. So we just, you know, more will come out, I'm sure, about her role and how people talk to her, approached her. More will come out. Interesting point made by uh, somebody on one of the national networks as well, that in fact, uh, the armorer and the AD are cooperating and talking. And he was a little surprised they didn't kind of take the fifth and say, you know what? I'm not going to say anything right now, actually. We're going to let this thing kind of go forward. Well, no, it's not surprising in many ways. Well, he's, you know, they're not, he's not talking to the media. I mean, he's cooperating with, you know, the media keeps saying, you know, calls were not returned, uh, text messages were not returned. So he's not talking to the media. But right. the fact that he's cooperating is not surprising because the more you cooperate, the more there's a potential 
for the responsibility to become dispersed ah, so that it doesn't come back to you. I'm not quite sure what you mean by that. Explain that just a little bit. Well, if you cooperate and you say what you did, so the AD says there are three guns and I was told all three were safe. Mm -hmm. um, and I handed, I, I grabbed one and I handed it to Baldwin. That's him saying, I am not personally responsible because I was told by the AD. Um, and so we don't know what she's going to say, why she put three guns on the card. She might say, you know, I was told to put three guns on the card that she might be able, she might be saying that I was told to let these people do uh, target shooting. So we don't know what she's going to say. So the more that she cooperates, the more the responsibility potentially becomes dispersed. It doesn't all land on her shoulders. Gotcha. That, 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 I appreciate that. And by the way, I should note, of the three guns that we know, one was an absolute fake, a, a for real fake. It was a, a plastic gun. The second one was a um, gun that you can do some things with the barrel where the, the bullet doesn't go all the way in, but it's still- Right, those are the kind of prop guns that don't close. So th right. that's a true prop gun. So there's no way for a real run to be in there because otherwise it wouldn't have closed. Exactly right. And then of course, the third gun being the one that had the live round in it. Right. And that begs a question, again, you know, you make an interesting point about Alec Baldwin and the cross draw kind of a thing. He was sitting in a church pew, just kind of practicing. Could he have practiced with the fake gun? Could he have practiced with the other one that wasn't? But that was, he's know? told, but when he's told cold gun, so why were the three guns there? Why didn't they um, just have the prop gun and the plastic gun? Right? Good point. Good Why point. didn't they? So that's that's all going to be a, be a question that needs to ans be answered, because if right. they had just had the prop gun, then phew, this wouldn't have happened. That would have been the one he would practice with. It would not have, you know, he'd been doing the cross draw. And, you know, I mean, and that's the, son, the kind of thing he has to practice because most people don't grow up thinking that a cross draw is a natural motion. For some people, it's faster, um, but for others, it's not. And so it's something that he has to practice. So why didn't they give him, you know, the prop gun or the fake gun? That's right. Why because did she have three guns there? You know, so that's a question they're going to have to, they're going right. to have to answer. That's right. And of course, part and parcel of that practice would be, of course, pulling the trigger because that is part of that scene. It's not, he's just pulling, pulling it and pointing it. Right. He's actually firing the gun in the scene. So it would be natural for him to just to pull the trigger, you right, know, right, so I right. can see how that whole thing happened. And right. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, it's such a tragedy. And my heart goes out to him. You know, he's one of our gifted actors of his generation. Um, I actually have used uh, parts of his book, um, Promises to Keep, I used in, in this, in this uh, casebook. Because uh, I met him uh, at the uh, bookseller, a booksellers convention in Los Angeles when that book came out. You know, he's an overall just, um, you know, a, a, I would uh, my impression of him is is a, is a good guy, and you and that is borne out by how distraught he was when this happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. so I mean, I don't really see how he is legally or morally culpable for what happened. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. But someone is, and we'll find out, that's for sure. Or so, a group of someones, I should right. say, right. not just one person. Right. Professor, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I know it was a bit last minute. It, it, uh, uh, it was very insightful. I mean, this is really kind of interesting. I got a million more questions, but maybe as this thing goes along, 
Can we tap on you with any significant changes in this investigation? Maybe get your thoughts. Oh, sure, sure. If something major happens, if they yeah. uncover more, sure, you can come back and I'll talk yeah. about it. Excellent. Professor Sherry Burt, UNM School of Law, Professor Emerita, we really appreciate your time. My pleasure. Folks, we will see you Friday night at seven o'clock. We'll be talking about this a little bit more with a great okay. panel and okay. uh, amongst other things as well. So until then, stay out of the wind, <laughs> stay <laughs> yes. warm. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you, right. Sherry. Really Thank appreciate you. it. Thank you. Bye, Gene. That will do it for this edition of New Mexico and Focus, the podcast. I'm your host, Kevin McDonald, an executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. On the way out, we want to give a shout out and a big thanks to senior producer Matt Grubbs. He's been with us here on the show for about three years but is off to a new adventure at KOB TV where he'll be an investigative uh, reporter along with special projects producer and he'll also be mentoring young uh, journalists. So excited for Matt and his opportunity. He's brought a lot to the show. Appreciate his professionalism, his thoughtfulness, his caring about the important issues in New Mexico. We will miss his voice here, but know it will be loud and strong at KOB. Matt, we can't wait to see what you do next. We will be watching and following. Until next time, thanks as always for tuning in and stay safe, stay healthy.